So welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Dr. Jim McDonald, and I want, on behalf of the Rhode Island Department of Health, I want to welcome you to Public Health Out Loud, uh, public health for the public. So it's our first episode of our podcast. I want to welcome you to joining us, and I want to introduce Dr. Phil Chan. Hello. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Phil Chan from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Thank you all for joining us. So today is episode one. We're going to chat about the pandemic's future, maybe even future pandemics. Uh, we're going to talk about past and present pandemics, and we're going to get real. And we really want to talk a little about the future of a millennial-old tradition of the handshake. So to shake or not to shake, that is our question for today. Dr. Chan, this may be our first pandemic, but it's not so for the planet. You know, And we want to talk a little bit today about what is a pandemic exactly. And by the way, who actually decides when we have a pandemic? And by that, I really mean the World Health Organization. That who is who I'm talking about. And, and a little bit about the word pandemic, but why don't you just walk us into that, Dr. Chan. Tell us a little bit about pandemics. Yeah, thank you, Dr. McDonald. I think uh, as an infectious disease doctor, of course, all these issues are very close to my heart. You know, this whole concept of pandemic is interesting, right? It's a, a term that's been thrown out there. You know, I looked up the, the, the origin of this word, which uh, has Greek origins, meaning all people. And basically, a pandemic is defined as a worldwide spread of a new disease affecting a significant proportion of the population. And that's different. You know, the other terms you may hear, you know, in public health, epidemic, endemic. Epidemic, interestingly, means upon people. And so it generally refers to to the rapid spread of disease in a given population within a short period of time. And so we generally think about things like meningitis. Uh, there can be epidemics of plague in the past, measles, dengue, HIV, etc. And this is different from endemic, uh, which means within people. And that refers to an infection that is constantly maintained um, at some sort of baseline level in a given population. And so we generally think about chickenpox as being endemic. And a lot of us, of course, are hoping uh, that, uh, that COVID-19 does not become endemic. But I think in response to your question about who decides, you know, in this case, the World Health Organization um, decides. And, and I think for sure, as we talk about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, I think we can all generally agree that uh, the COVID-19 has hit pandemic proportions. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about the word endemic, and it's interesting. I think someday we'll probably have to accept that SARS-CoV-2 will be one of those. It's a new disease, but I don't think it's going away. Like, in other words, I don't think it's going the way of smallpox, where it's going to be eradicated. So the present pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, you know, it's interesting. You know, around the Department of Health, I, I'm a big acronym, I guess, disliker. Let's be honest about it. I always prefer people to use words instead of acronyms. So SARS-CoV-2 stands for a severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus number two. So as this suggests, there must have been a number one. But then there was MERS. And, and you know, MERS and SARS-1, they didn't become pandemics. So what was it about those two viruses, you think, and maybe some other pandemics like the 1918 flu? Why is it you think MERS and SARS-1 did not become pandemics? And then what do, you, what do you know about other pandemics? Yeah, so let's drill down on this a little bit. I think, you know, as an infectious disease doc and thinking about this, I am surprised about the the level of severity of COVID-19. I'm going to admit before COVID-19 happened, I wasn't convinced that we were going to see a pandemic to this level. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I was proven wrong. Uh, but when we talk about pandemics and specifically uh, SARS and MERS, 
um, and COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 here, you know, those refer to coronaviruses. And I think if we just talked about the word endemic, now there's four endemic coronaviruses that are always circulating in the community. Uh, and in fact, these endemic coronaviruses, uh, which are not named uh, the ones that we're talking about, are responsible for about 30% of the common cold. So my guess is, uh, if you're listening to this, you have probably actually had a coronavirus in the past. What's happened though, is that some of these coronaviruses have evolved and mutated, and we've had SARS, so SARS uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, uh, number one, which uh, there's an outbreak of that in the year 2003. Um, it affected about 8,000 people, and it led to uh, close to 800 deaths. So the fatality rate of that virus was around 10%. Um, and similarly with MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, there's an outbreak of that in 2012, affecting about 2,500 people, of which about 850 died. So the fatality rate of SARS and MERS, um, for SARS, it was about 10%. Again, for MERS, it was about 34%. So very, very high. Uh, these viruses were similar in nature to SARS-CoV-2 in that they're coronaviruses, um, but very high fatality rates. And that's one thing that's actually, if you look at how viruses evolve, that's actually counter, counter to how you want a virus to cause a pandemic, if you think about it, right? So, so unfortunately, I think with SARS-CoV-2, you have all these elements that align in terms of a virus that's able to transmit effectively between people, which doesn't kill a lot of people. I think that's one of the issues about MERS and SARS is that a, a lot of times it made the host, uh, the person very sick and potentially die before it could infect others. This is different though from the 1918 flu pandemic um, which killed about 50 million people. It's estimated it affected, infected about 500 million people across the world, about a third of the world's population at the time, and killed about 50 million people, had about a fatality rate of around 2.5%, um, with the average yearly flu rate, death rate being about less than 0.1%. So for those of you that have followed what's happened with SARS-CoV-2, uh, the fatality rates uh, are generally in the older population for COVID-19, uh, for younger people, especially those less than, less than 60 years of age, it's less than 1%. It's approaching zero for younger populations, for kids and children, which is great. If there's a silver lining, that must be it. Um, but for older people, especially those greater than 80, you do see a mortality rate greater than 10% and upwards of, uh, of 30%, which is concerning and why we've done so much to protect our, our older population, of course. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I think about is what was it about this virus that made it so well suited to become a pandemic? And, you know, one of the things I thought was like, you know, it's got a fairly good degree of transmissibility, so it's pretty easy to catch it one person to the other. But it's that long incubation period that I think was really interesting. You know, an incubation period of two to 14 days, people are more likely to feel safe. It's more likely to be out there. And it, it just takes a long time for people to get sick. And then the, the maximum infectivity, like with a lot of other viruses, occurs right, uh, right at symptom onset. But people are, are still spreading the virus before uh, they have symptoms. And I think that's just one of those things, like a lot of other viruses, you see that. And of course, people are obviously spreading virus while they're sick as well. The other thing I think about with this is part of why I think it was so well suited to become a pandemic virus is that there's a lot of people with mild illness. Um, so when you have a lot of people with mild illness, they're going to spread um, the virus. And so it really is interesting to me how this happened there. So another thought I just wanted to get into was, you know, this is our first episode, but pre-pandemic seems like it was so long ago. Like I think at times 
we sometimes forget what we did before the pandemic here at the Department of Health. Um, but, you know, what did we chat a little bit about? What did you do really uh, when you think about for before the pandemic? What were you really mostly up to around here? Yeah, it seems like sometimes I forget. It seems like so long ago. You know, we often have a, a joke that a day here in the pandemic feels like a month, uh, you know, pre-COVID-19 here. But uh yeah, thank you for the question, Dr. McDonald. So before uh, COVID-19, uh, I uh, assisted and worked at the Department of Health as one of their consultant medical directors um, working on HIV and STIs and viral hepatitis. Uh, I run the, uh, the, the state-sponsored STI clinic. It's based as a partnership here with Lifespan and the Merriam Hospital, uh, where we see uh, patients for STI care. I saw HIV patients over at the immunology center here. Um, and I've done a lot of work in the community. And one of my passions has been uh, working uh, to address the public health burden, specifically of, of STIs, uh, HIV, uh, viral hepatitis, with uh, a lot of my other colleagues and um, community members out there, uh, looking to get back to to do that uh, in the near future, hopefully. And one thing that we're gonna have to do, I think, whether it be STIs or, or uh, HIV, uh, we're gonna have a lot, of, a lot to clean up on, I think, and to reassess about what's happening, how the pandemic has affected this. Uh, Dr. McDonald, what did you do before the pandemic here? Yeah, so interesting, before the pandemic, a lot of the things I did, I still do now, like I'm still running the state medical board, uh, so that's still a big responsibility of mine in Rhode Island. I, I actually was very involved still with the drug overdose prevention. Of course, the overdose crisis is a big deal across the United States. And and we'll talk a little more about that in our next episode. But I think, you know, really the drug overdose prevention problem, I'm just medical director for that. You know, I do some other things around the department with health policy, medical marijuana, some other things too. But, you know, on, on the side, I'm a Met fan. And I think it's important to be a Met fan. I think part of being a Met fan is learning about loyalty and perseverance. And one of the things about loyalty and perseverance that's helped me get through the pandemic is, you know, as a Met fan, I don't give up all that easily. Kind of have to work through some of the challenges here. And the pandemic is really uh, things that have kind of helped me move in that direction. I do want to chat a little bit, though, about some other issues like, there's been some personal stories that have affected us all during the pandemic. And why don't we just share some? Can you just start with one, a little bit of a story about your own life with the pandemic, how it's affected you a little bit? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, we're all human here. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of us that work in public health and healthcare workers. And it's, it, it saddens me from time to time to hear about some of these stories. And I think sometimes it, it just brings it home. And I think for me personally, one way that I've managed uh, myself through the pandemic uh, is really running every day. I think mental health is important for those of us who are healthcare workers and in public health, and uh, frankly, for those of us that are really involved in the pandemic care. Um, but I, you know, I've uh, I've had some personal losses as well during this time. And I think Dr. McDonald, one thing that we both lead um, uh, in the state has been our nursing home response, and we've worked to try to make our nursing homes and uh, assisted living residencies as safe as possible. But on a personal note, uh, you know, I lost my grandfather during the pandemic here. Uh, he was at a nursing home, actually, in Massachusetts and passed away from COVID-19 during this time um, a few months ago. Uh, I also had another, um, uh, my grandmother, both of, the, both of my grandparents were, you know, in their, in their 90s. They had lived long, great lives. They both, uh, you know, died without pain, which is very reassuring. But my grandmother, too, who passed away from lymphoma, was uh, up in Vermont and I remember in the last couple of weeks of her life of, of trying to talk to the assisted living where she was staying at the time. And Vermont has some, some pretty strict uh, quarantine requirements for travelers. And I eventually was able to go see her, uh, but it took about 45 minutes on the phone making my case to the executive director of the assisted 
um, living facility there. And he was doing the right thing. Um, and I've been in that role here in Rhode Island. So just it drove home uh, a lot of important lessons to me just about the need, of course, uh, in, in the nursing home, assisted living population, about the importance of visitation and trying to work with people. Um, and uh, frankly, Dr. McDonald, I feel like a lot of times we're in a no-win situation. It's like, you know, you're sort of darned if you do, darned if you don't, uh, especially given the, the higher mortality rate in some of the older population. So, you know, it, yeah, it, it's, go ahead. It's interesting. One of the things I was thinking of, too, is it really does seem like the isolation is so problematic. I mean, one of the things I've just seen, too, as I think about the pandemic, it's just not being able to go visit family and friends and go interact. And it's interesting, like, my family is so used to going away every Columbus Day weekend. We've been doing it for the last almost 50 years. Big family reunion to get up the Adirondacks and upstate New York and go horseback riding and hiking and do all kinds of fun things. And quite frankly, that was canceled this year as so much of our family's life was canceled this year. You know, think about my daughter having a school trip to Ecuador, canceled. My daughter's graduation from high school was really different. You know, her, her big school play, Hello Dolly, canceled. She got the role of Dolly in that. And, you know, one of the things that I think about with this whole pandemic, it's really turned into the year of can't. And that's just hard for me. And it's one of those struggles. I think it's hard for a lot of us. It's just struggling with we're so used to doing things and we just can't do it right now. And I think one of the things I'm just keeping my own mind to keep myself properly grounded, a little perspective is that this is a season of life. It's not going to go on forever. It's going to get back to new, some new normal at some point. So I, I'm looking forward to that. I want to bring our conversation back to our title, though. We're talking about the handshake eventually going goodbye, maybe. Are we waving goodbye to the handshake? What are we doing with the handshake? And so, you know, handshaking and shaking hands. I mean, Dr. Chan, I'm just so curious, were, were you a big handshaker? I think we all were, of course, especially in the professional world here uh, as, a, as a physician. Uh, we shake everyone's hand. It's a, it's a form of greeting. Um, but, you know, curiously, I was so curious when you raised this question and wondering where did it start. So what, are your, what did you find out in your research? Where did the handshake start? Yeah, it's interesting. So I had Sarah, one of our research assistants, really do some background on where handshaking start because I haven't really looked at this before. It's one of the things I grew up doing because I just live in America. So we're going to dive in now to a little bit about what we know from the origins of the handshake. And I have to just admit, I mean, the true origins are probably not completely well known, but let's tell you what we did find out about the origins of the handshake. And we're going to go back to 3000 BC. It was the earliest observed use in ancient interactions um, between the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon um, as they met to try to establish a peace treaty. So a handshake was there to steal the alliance. So there we go. 3000 years ago. Look at that. That's, that's impressive there. And then there were some, some references in the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, in these cases, handshake is being used to express trust, create pledges. So it's interesting. It's also an ancient Greek art. Uh, there's displays that it's a symbol of welcoming, friendliness, hospitality, and trust. It's interesting, too. It's in gravestones in ancient, ancient Greek culture, um, depicted as the handshake between the deceased and other family members. So there's some, some, some interesting thoughts there. Then there's some, some notations in ancient Rome. Handshake was known to appear on the ancient currency. Uh, the coins depicted individuals and individuals shaking hands to symbolize loyalty and friendship. Uh, so, so really quite interesting if you ask me. The most popular theory, which is the one I've heard before, was from medieval times. And in our culture, when shaking one's hand, the motion was supposedly to shake out any weapons the other party might have had on their sleeve or they might have been holding. So this created a greeting of goodwill and peace 
establish some immediate trust between the two parties. So there you go from the medieval culture. In the United States, this is something I thought was most interesting. Like, you know, we're a relatively young country still, but handshaking was not established until around the 17th century and was started by the Quakers. And typically the gesture of greeting was tipping one's hat or even bowing before then. So the handshake became a more egalitarian mode of greeting. So method of developing a little social equality in the culture rather than tipping a hat or bowing as one might do to a superior or nobility. So it, it's interesting how that continued into the 1800s, becoming a common mode of greeting. And I don't know if you notice that there's rules in our culture, unwritten rules, if you will, on the strength of the greeting, the strength of the handshake, duration of the handshake, um, an indicator of you know someone's character a little bit. So apparently the, the, there's something called the Victorian shake, uh, which was supposed to be a firm and secure, but not violent or excessively strong handshake. So apparently there's a lot of these unwritten rules for the handshake. But, you know, as the pandemic has moved around a little bit, this is raising all kinds of questions, but the handshake was one of the first things to go. It's interesting. I remember going to a public event with the governor, and it was interesting. As we got there, people were trying to do these elbow bumps or the things with their feet, and I was just sort of like, I'm good. I'm just fine. I'm just going to wave. You know, it's kind of what I do is I'm just going to wave here. Um, so and it's interesting. You know, I was thinking, too, about – I mean, Dr. Chan, you know this. I used to work on the Navajo Reservation out in Chinle, Arizona, right in the heart of the Navajo Nation. And the Navajo did handshakes, but it was a, it was a softer shake. In other words, a very gentle shake. But one of the things I noticed about living on the Navajo Reservation was their culture. When they would say a greeting to someone, it wasn't just a hi. It was, it was trans, it, what they would say was something called yate abene. It's the only Navajo I know, by the way, and I'm not sure I even pronounced it correctly, but when you say yate abeni, what it means in Navajo, it loosely translates to, I am well, you are well, we are well together. So it's a beautiful greeting, and it really is a nice little communal greeting. And I think one of the things you also know about me, I used to be in the Navy when I was in Okinawa, Japan. It was very common in the Japanese tradition for people just to bow to each other. Um, and it really wasn't, a handshake wasn't something that was done a lot. So we live in a different time. So I'm just curious, Dr. Chan, are you still shaking hands? What are you doing with all this? Yeah, thank you for that, Dr. McDonald. I think that was fascinating. You know, I, as you were reading through that, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here curious about when the, you know, we're living in the pandemic, so often it's hard to kind of, you know, evaluate what's going on around us a lot of times. Uh, but I'm sort of, sort of thinking how history will reflect upon the time that is now uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and what we'll say, how will habits change? Will we shake hand, you know, will we be shaking hands in the future? Will we be shaking hands in a year? Uh, will people still be wearing masks? So just curious about what behaviors may change and persist beyond the pandemic. You know, I've wondered about, you know, my own behaviors. Uh, for example, will I wear a, a mask in, in airplanes? Will I wear a mask uh, out in public, even when the pandemic potentially is gone? Will I be attending concerts, et cetera? So it's going to be interesting to see how the pandemic changes behaviors. And I think for myself personally, I've rethought about basically everything. And I can say for the handshake that maybe one thing I will be okay letting go. Uh, but I think that we as a society will have to come to obviously new forms of greeting that feel, um, that feel personable and allow us to connect with other people. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm a little bit ambiguous about whether I'm going to be a handshaker in the future. You know, to shake or not to shake, that is the question. I'm leaning towards moving away from being a handshaker, though. And I, I think it's part of where I've just sort of said, you know, I was just remembering, remember that old TV show, Monk, uh, used to be on USA Network. And whenever you know he would shake someone's hand, he would clean his hand with hand sanitizer, would offend people. 
and and maybe he was onto something at that point. But I think at some point it's just like, you know, as I think about how I interact with other people, I don't know that I need to touch them to interact with them as successfully as I have in the past. So I think maybe this is something where I just might move in a different direction. And I think it's interesting. It's one of the things that's happened in this pandemic. I remember when I did my first Zoom call on a Friday morning, it was like magic to me about eight months ago. I was like, how is this even possible? And now all day long, we're on one or another various form of electronic media looking at screens. And it's really allowed working at home or maybe living at work, depends on how you want to look at it. And it's allowed other ways to interact with people. And one of the things I'm just noticing is that I'm getting better at interacting with people using electronic media. And I'm noticing that these are things that I'm making more comfortable. I'm forming relationships with people now that I work with where I've never physically met these individuals. I've only known them through Zoom or other electronic devices. And oddly enough, we have healthy working relationships. So it seems to work. And so kind of where I'm headed for the future is, I'm, I think I'm heading right now, if you're gonna ask me today as a non-handshaker for the future, and just going to keep my distance a little bit. And we'll see what the future holds for me. And what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one one thing that's going to be interesting, too, is looking how other viruses and other, you know, like the flu, et cetera, because I think we're in one great experiment uh, in terms of infection control. You know, everything that we do in terms of social distancing for six feet, hand hygiene, masking, those all protect against so many other respiratory viruses. And I'm, back in my mind, I've always wondered if some of these other respiratory viruses are actually dying out because we're actually implemented such wide scale uh, uh, mitigation approaches. So it's going to be interesting to look at trends in other viruses. I think to your point about uh, working in the field of substance use, you know, sexually transmitted infections, I think there's going to be such broad ranging effects in the future from this pandemic that we'll, uh, we're really going to have to dig ourselves out of a lot of things here. Yeah, it will be interesting if there's some silver linings coming from this. Like one of the things I do notice too is just, you know, as a pediatrician, when I'm not working in the Department of Health, I'm just seeing less people who are sick. And it's something we've seen across the board. There's just less people getting sick. And I think if there's one silver lining to the pandemic is I think one of the things we've been able to do is communicate to the general public, generally how do viruses spread from one person to the other? Because people now are talking about droplet precautions and they actually seem to know what they mean. People are talking about why you actually wash your hands because soap is still one of the most powerful public health interventions out there. One of the smartest things we ever did is learn how to clean our hands. I think it's one of the things that I think the pandemic has done for us is realize that we really need to clean our hands. It's kind of interesting. Like I have to say, you know, we've been messaging for people for a long time. You need to wash your hands for 20 seconds. And it's amazing how few people do that. And I'm just going to give you a word of advice here as a doctor, if you're listening to us today is if you don't have 20 seconds to wash your hands, let's go ahead and lighten up that schedule just a little bit there. Cause we got to prioritize some of these things here. So Dr. Chan, we're getting to the end of our first episode. Why this went by really quick for me. Um, you know, next next time we get together, we're going to talk about syndemics. So that's exciting. Uh, and I look forward to talking about syndemics. We're going to bring in the pandemic again because the pandemic is big. But we're going to talk about some other things as well because the pandemic isn't occurring in isolation. We're going to talk a little bit about syndemics. But Dr. Chen, you've got the final word today. How do you want to close us out today? 
Thank you, Dr. McDonald. I think I'd like to close this out just by offering an optimistic thought. You know, to me, I think the vaccines are coming. Uh, I think that some of these vaccines, if not all of them, will be efficacious. There's so many different companies working on them. There's at least four major trials that are close to ending. So I think we're getting there. And I just want to offer an optimistic note to people during this time that that I think we're, we're approaching the beginning of the end. I think the vaccines will take some time to roll out. We'll be talking about them for sure in one of our future episodes. But uh, just want to offer people some hope and some optimism that we're getting there. Otherwise, thank you everyone for joining and stay safe and please watch us again.